Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the theories surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. Forty years ago, New York City's residents were gripped by terror. For a span of 13 months, a killer held them a prisoner. A city wracked by arsons, blackouts, and riots now faced with a string of attacks. Six were killed and seven were wounded. The weapon was a 44 caliber gun. No one was safe. Anyone could fall victim. This week's subject, the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. Let's go to the year 1976 in New York City. The city was in the grips of a crime wave. There were 1,700 murders just that year. Murder, rape, arson, and armed robbery rates were skyrocketing. This was not Giuliani's New York. But New Yorkers are resilient. They still like to have fun. It was the birth of disco, and discotheques were all the rage with young people. Two of those were 19-year-old Jody Valenti and her friend 18-year-old Donna Loria. They had just been to a new Rochelle discotheque called Peach Trees. Shortly after 1 a.m. on July 29, 1976, the two were talking about their night, sitting in Jody's Oldsmobile in the Pelham Bay area of the Bronx. Donna's father saw the two talking, admonished them for the late night, and told Donna to come up and walk the dog. She finished talking to Jody while her dad went upstairs to fetch the dog. In the next few minutes, chaos would erupt. Donna Loria went to get out when she saw a man approach the car. 
He crouched, pulled a pistol from a paper bag, and fired shots into the car. Jody was shot in the thigh. Laura was hit by one bullet. A third bullet missed them both. The shooter walked away. By the time Laura's brother came from upstairs, she was dead. Jody gave a description. A white male in his 30s, fair complexion, 5 feet 9 inches, with short, dark, curly hair. Laura's father described seeing the same man parked in a yellow compact car nearby earlier in the night. Neighbors said an unfamiliar yellow car had been cruising the neighborhood for hours before the shooting. Detectives Al Howard and Richard Paul caught the case. The location was a mafia dumping ground, but the girls had no ties to the mafia. So was this a case of mistaken identity? They thought they caught a lead when they heard Donna's boyfriend, Vinny, was reportedly a wannabe wise guy. Someone had seen him with someone buying a gun. The gun that killed the girls was a 44 caliber Charter Arms Bulldog. The bullets were huge, meant to inflict damage. It wasn't a popular type of gun. When ballistics tested it, it didn't match. Without anything to go on, the case went cold. On October 23rd, 20-year-old Carl DeNaro was celebrating his entry into the Air Force. The self-professed long-haired hippie met up with 18-year-old Rosemary Keenan at a local bar. He was sweet on her, but her father, who was a cop, didn't like Carl at all. After the bar, Carl and Rosemary headed to a secluded residential area of Flushing, Queens, next to Brown Park. A lover's lane, if you will. It was a dark night, made even darker by the burned-out street lamp, which was fine for the young couple who wanted to make out. Suddenly, shots rang out, and the windows shattered in the car. Five shots, to be exact. Carl said it felt like the car exploded. Terrified, Rosemary started the car and sped back to the bar. When they saw the doorman, he said, Carl, you don't look too good. To which Carl replied back, I don't feel too good. He didn't realize that he had been shot. His long hair had been holding back the blood. When he sat down, his shirt turned red. Luckily, Rosemary had only sustained superficial injuries. Carl wasn't so lucky. He needed a metal plate to replace a portion of his skull. Neither one had seen the shooter. The only evidence were the 44 caliber bullets embedded in the car. Rosemary Keenan's father, a 20-year veteran of the NYPD force, didn't see any connection to the previous shooting. He grilled Carl, thinking it was a drug deal gone wrong. But Carl was a small-time pot user, not a dealer. Since it was a different borough and precinct, no one saw a connection to the previous shooting or to the next. On November 27, 1976, in Rose, Queens, 16-year-old Donna DeMassey and her friend 18-year-old Joanne Lomino had just walked home after seeing a movie. It was after midnight as they sat on the porch of Joanne's home. It was odd, but they didn't think much of it when a man in his 20s wearing military fatigues asked for directions. Can you tell me how to get... 
before finishing his sentence, he quickly pulled out a gun, shooting each girl once. The girls fell to the ground, and he fired several more times. One bullet hit the apartment building. Neighbors heard the gunshots and rushed out. They saw a blonde man with a pistol run from the scene. Both girls were rushed to the hospital. Donna DeMassey had been shot in the neck, but her injuries weren't life-threatening. Joanne Lamino also survived, but was left a paraplegic. Police once again assumed it was an isolated incident due to the many murders that occurred that year. There were 500 to date already that year. It wouldn't be until the next shooting that police would finally make a connection. 30-year-old John Deal and his fiancée, 26-year-old Christine Frund, had just seen the movie Rocky. After seeing the movie, they planned to go to a dance hall. Their car was parked at Station Plaza in the Forest Hills section of Queens. This was around 12.40 a.m. They had a great night and were sitting in the car discussing their wedding plans when three gunshots penetrated the car. John got out, screaming for help, pleading with passing cars to stop. No one would stop. Panicked and suffering minor injuries, he drove away in a panic. Christine was slumped over in the car. She had been shot twice. She died at the hospital around 4.30 a.m. Neither had seen the attacker. Marlon Hopkins of Queen's Homicide was one of the first on the scene. He didn't know of the earlier shootings and initially suspected John of being the shooter. But when Captain Joe Borelli of Queen's Homicide hears of the shooting, he recalled the previous attacks and made the connection. All 44 caliber bullets and most of the victims were young women with long dark hair. Police made the first public acknowledgement that the shooting was similar to the earlier ones. NYPD Detective Richard Conlon said that they were leaning towards a connection with all these cases. Composites were made, but due to the lack of witnesses and the various descriptions, police were looking for multiple subjects. So Borelli set up a task force of officers who had worked on each individual case. This included Marlon, Keenan, and Paul. They realized that Carl DeNaro, with his long hair, might have been mistaken for a girl when he was shot. The press started sniffing around the story. At that time, competition between the tabloids was very intense. Police didn't want to make the 44 caliber detail public, and they kept it from the press. If the killer caught wind that they knew of the gun, he might ditch it and they'd be back to square one. In a case like this, where all they had was the bullet evidence, catching the killer would sadly hinge on more victims being attacked. It wasn't long before that occurred. On March 8, 1977, 19-year-old Columbia University language student Virginia Voskarichian was walking home from school. She only lived a block from where Christine Frond was shot. Virginia was suddenly confronted by an armed man. Instinctively, she raised her textbooks to defend herself. A bullet went through the textbooks, striking her in the head and killing her instantly. 
The killer was getting bolder. It was only 7.30 in the evening. A neighborhood resident who heard the gunshots was rounding the corner onto Virginia streets when he nearly collided with a short, husky boy, around 16 to 18, clean-shaven, wearing a sweater and a cap. Startled by the resident, he pulled the cap over his face and yelled, Oh, Jesus, before sprinting away. Other neighbors recalled seeing the man loitering in the area about an hour before the shooting. NYPD psychologist Harvey Schlossberg joined the task force to help out. Even though it was only the Bronx in the Queens area, it was still a large scale to cover. As Captain Borelli said, it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. Police Commissioner Michael Dodd called for a press conference to be held on March 10th at the 109th Precinct in Queens. The one detail that they wanted to keep from the public about the caliber of gun was revealed by Mayor Abraham Bean. The press made a huge story, dubbing the killer with the name the 44 caliber killer. Every day, competing rival papers, the New York Post and the Daily News blasted their front pages with sensationalized stories. Circulation dramatically increased. New Yorkers couldn't get enough of the story. They were both afraid and tantalized. In April, an official task force was formed called Operation Omega. Over 50 of the city's best detectives poured night and day over leads. Those leads poured in from all over the world. What they did know was this. He was a white male, about 5 feet 8 inches tall, with dark hair. Psychiatrist Harvey Schlossberg said his only pleasure comes from killing. Patrols focused on major roads and lovers' lanes. To catch him, they even resorted to using mannequins with cops and patrol cars as bait. When that didn't work because mannequins don't move, they started using long-haired wigs on male detectives. Tips were pouring in from everywhere, even the most unexpected sources. Captain Borelli recalls an odd phone call he received. It was from a Hispanic man who said his wife had special powers. She'd had a vision that the killer would strike next, on a street that's not a street, on a parkway that was not a parkway. He would kill two people, a man and a woman, and they would be in a black and red car, and that he would speak directly to the captain. Initially, he shrugged his off as crazy until April 17, 1977. Sweetheart since high school, 20-year-old Alexander Esau and 18-year-old Valentina Suriani were parked on a service road on Hutchinson River Parkway, not a street or a parkway, and a red and black car, just like the woman predicted. The location was only two blocks away from where Donna Loria and Judy Valenti had been shot. Valentina felt under the weather that night and her mother urged her to stay home. But being young and carefree, she went out anyway. Alexander and Valentina were each shot twice. She died at the scene, and he succumbed to his injury several hours later at the hospital. The same caliber gun was used, and this time the killer left a note. 
handwritten, and mostly block letters. The note was addressed directly to Captain Borelli. It was initially withheld from the public, but some contents were released to the press. Here it is in its entirety. I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house some rest. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I'm on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some young blood to preserve his youth. He's had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Ugh. Me hoot, it hurts, sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt. Prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are the prettiest of all. It must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life. Blood for Papa, Mr. Borelli, sir. I don't want to kill any more, no, sir. No more, but I must. Honor my father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's, to the people of Queens. I love you, and I want to wish you all a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back, I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 bank, bang, ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. On May 26th, police release a psychological profile put together by Harvey Schlossberg. He said the man was a voyeur who took pleasure from interfering with couples. He was a paranoid, neurotic, schizophrenic. One suspect did fit the description. A parole officer noticed or notified police of a man who had sent him a crazy letter. This man had shot at passing vehicles from his apartment. When it was raided, they found a slew of guns, but none matched the killer's weapon. All they could do now was place surveillance on him. Then, on May 30th, a handwritten letter was delivered to the Daily News top columnist, Jimmy Breslin. It was postmarked the same day in Englewood, New Jersey. Printed on the reverse side of the envelope was... Blood and Family, Darkness and Death, Absolute Depravity, 44. So here, in its entirety, is the second letter. Hello from the gutters of New York City, which are filled with dog manure, 
vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalk of New York City, and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that had settled into the cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather I'm still here, like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face some day, or perhaps I shall be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Whatever, if I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job. Or should I say, you will see my handiwork at the next job. Remember, Ms. Loria? Thank you. And their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation, 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC. The Duke of Death. The Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. P.S. Please inform all the detectives working the slangs to remain. P.S. J.B. Please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging. Drive on. Think positive. Give up. Get off your butts. Knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. So underneath the son of Sam was a sketch containing several symbols. To me, it looked like a sigil, which is used in magic spells. The question of what will you have for July 29th is obviously referring to the anniversary of the first shooting. Breslin notified the police of the letter. They noted that it was more sophisticated than the first letter. They wondered if it was created at an art studio due to the lettering. They thought he might be a calligrapher or a graphic designer. They even questioned the staff of DC Comics to see if the handwriting was of someone they recognized. The phrase Wicked King Wicker caused the police to privately screen the movie Wicker Man looking for clues. The New York Daily News published a letter a week later. Breslin urged the killer to surrender. It became the highest selling edition to date with over 1 million copies sold. Police received thousands of tips and women panicked. They wore their hair pinned. Some even cut or dyed their hair or bought wigs. 
The mayor increased the task force, which became the largest in police history, and the police had their suspect. But they were tailing him on the subway. And- Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And he had lost them. Then the seventh shooting occurred on June 26th. 17-year-old Judy Placido had just graduated high school. She and Sal Lupo, also 20, had just been to Elephus Discotheque in Bayside, Queens. There was a patrol car stationed outside since they thought it might be a target. Because of the shooting, Sam offered to take Judy home. They were sitting in Sal's red Cadillac around 3 o'clock a.m., and they were actually discussing the Son of Sam case when three gunshots blasted through the car. Judy was shot in the right temple, shoulder, and back of the neck. One bullet lodged in her temple. Two other bullets passed through her body, barely missing vital organs. Sal was wounded in the right forearm. He headed back to the discotheque for help while Judy staggered up the street and fell. Both survived, but neither saw their attacker. And unfortunately, the patrol car that had been stationed outside had returned to the station at the end of the shift. Two witnesses saw a dark-haired man in a leisure suit fleeing the scene. The task force intensified its surveillance on the letter writer, car shooter. Around this time, a citywide blackout had lasted for days. There was looting, fires, and thousands of arrests. It was just another blow to a city already in the depths of chaos and the killings didn't let up. On July 31, 1979, 20-year-old Robert Violante was preparing for a first date with 20-year-old Stacy Moskowitz. He wasn't worried about the recent killings. His date was a blonde, and he told his parents about the killer. He didn't come to Brooklyn yet. Stacy and Robert went to a movie, dinner, and then a park in Bensonhurst. 
They'd had a blast, even playing on a swing set like kids. As they sat in Robert's car, kissing under a streetlight, Stacy got a bit nervous. Robert urged her to stay just five more minutes. But that five minutes would change their lives forever. 19-year-old Tommy Zeno was parked in his car, three cars actually, in front of Robert's, with his date. He caught a glimpse in his rearview mirror of a man walking out of the park. The man got within three feet of the car and fired four rounds, striking both victims in the head. Tommy recalls that it didn't look real. It looked like something out of a movie. Due to the full moon and the streetlight, he got a really good look at the shooter. A male with dark blonde hair that looked like a wig, 25 to 30, about 5 foot 9 inches. Robert recalls that everything went black. He honked his horn until it died, yelling for help. A woman on the other side of the park saw a man in a cheap nylon wig sprint from the park and enter a small, light-collared car, and other witnesses saw a car speed off from the scene, described a yellow Volkswagen with its headlights off. Another witness also described a yellow Volkswagen that had sped through an intersection nearly hitting him. Angered, he followed the car, but eventually gave up the chase. He described the driver as late 20s, narrow face, stringy hair with dark, dark whiskers. Robert and Stacy were rushed to the hospital. Robert lost vision in one eye and was reduced to limited vision in the other. His father was glued to his son's side. He was the one that broke the news of his eyes to him but he was reluctant to tell him about Stacy. She had died several days later of massive brain damage. Robert's emotionally wrecked father said of the news that Robert would have time to absorb that later, that he had, quote, been exposed to enough. Police learned of the shooting around 2.50 a.m. Roadblocks were set up an hour later, and hundreds of drivers were questioned. Detective John Falotico was awakened at home and told to report to the 60th Precinct in Coney Island. He was given two weeks to work on the case and then give his findings to the task force. Detective Bill Clark had been surveilling their main suspect. Sadly, he had been at home during the shooting, so he was not their man. That meant that they were back to square one. That was until Cecilia Davis came forward. She'd been walking her dog near the scene of the shooting. She noticed Officer Mike Cantaneo ticketing a car parked by a fire, fire hydrant. After the police left, a young man walked by her, seeming to study her. She noticed he was wielding a dark object in his hand. By the time she got home, she heard the gunshots. Police decided to check every ticketed car in the hopes of finding more witnesses. But this was before computerized systems, so it took a week of work to track down the summons that Mike Cantanea wrote. The one on the car belonged to a David Berkowitz of Yonkers. On August 9th, an NYPD detective telephoned Yonkers Police Dispatch to get them to track down Berkowitz to schedule an interview as a witness. The dispatcher, Wheat Carr, told them they didn't want to see him as a witness, 
She thought this man was the son of Sam. Apparently, the Carr family had been trouble had been having trouble with their neighbor, David Berkowitz. Wheat, her father Sam, and brothers John and Michael had been continuously harassed by Berkowitz over their father's dog, Harvey. He was bothered by the dog's barking. He had sent threatening letters to the car home, one stating, I can see that there will be no peace in my life or my family's life until I end yours. He also sent letters to his downstairs neighbor, Craig Glassman. One stated, True, I am the killer, but Craig, the killings are at your command. Wheat told Sergeant Mike Novity of the escalating threats after Harvey had been shot but not killed. She was convinced he was the killer. But every time he tried to contact the task force, he received a busy signal. It wasn't until they wanted him as a witness that police realized he was their prime suspect. Officer Bill Gardella recalls being sent to Yonkers in an unmarked car with two detectives with him. It was August 10, 1977. They checked on Berkowitz's yellow Ford Galaxy parked near his address of 35 Pine Street. After seeing a rifle in the back seat, they searched it and also found a duffel bag full of ammo, maps of the crime scenes, and a letter written to Inspector Timothy Dowd of the Omega Task Force. They knew that they had their man. They were waiting on a search warrant for his apartment. The warrant hadn't arrived when they spotted David Berkowitz leaving his apartment around 10 p.m., and his hand was a paper bag containing a 44 caliber gun. Detective John Falatico approached the driver's side door, pointing the gun inches from Berkowitz's temple. Sergeant Gardella pointed his at the passenger side door. Gardella recalls that his hand was on the ignition, gun by his side. He yelled, Police! Berkowitz kept his hand on the ignition, calmly turned and smiled without flinching. He said, Well, you got me. How come it took you so long? Gardella asked, Now that I've got you, who have I got? You know, he replied. No, I don't. You tell me. I'm Sam. The police received their search warrant and entered apartment 7-9. All of the windows were blacked out and covered. The walls were covered in satanic graffiti, and a huge hole in the wall was where he talked to Sam. They found over hundreds of notebooks detailing the hundreds of arsons that he had set in New York City. Berkowitz was held in Yonkers Police Station and then taken to the task force headquarters on Coney Island. He was interrogated for about 30 minutes before he confessed. Police were stunned by what he had to tell them. Sam was his former neighbor, Sam Carr. He proclaimed Sam's Labrador retriever, Harvey, was possessed by an ancient demon who commanded him to kill. The entity spoke to him through the dog's barks. The demon demanded the blood of pretty young girls. The city was exhilarated that the killer was finally caught. The world soon learned about his background and his childhood. David Bergowitz was born Richard David Falco on June 1, 1953 in Brooklyn. 
His mother, Elizabeth, had him out of wedlock with a married salesman named Joseph Kleinman. Days after his birth, he was adopted by Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz, Jewish-American hard store retailers who changed his name to David Richard Berkowitz. His childhood in the Bronx was pretty normal. His parents doted on him since he was their only child. Around age seven, they told him that he was adopted and that his mother died in childbirth. This would greatly affect him in a negative way, causing severe depression. Despite that, he did well in school, probably due to his IQ of 118. But also around this time, he suffered two head injuries. We now know that head injuries can dramatically alter a person's personality and actions, sometimes linked to violence. First, he was hit by a car, and a few months later, he ran into a wall. At age eight, he was hit on the head with a pipe, requiring stitches. Around this time, he supposedly witnessed a girl die after being hit by a car. From age 10 to 14, he was a bit of a loner. The kids at school teased him for being chubby. During his early, early adolescence, he began setting fires and killing bugs by burning them and gluing them with rubber cement. He claimed monsters were bothering him at night. At age 13, he killed his mother's bird by giving it cleaning fluid. Being very close to her, he was jealous of the attention she gave the bird. At age 14, his world was shattered when his mother died from cancer. Rapidly, his grades declined and his strong religious faith wavered. In 1971, he joined the army and served in South Korea. He began using drugs, mostly acid, and regularly getting into trouble. He reportedly lost his virginity to a sex worker, contracting a venereal disease in the process. His fire starting began again. After an honorable discharge, he kept mostly blue-collar jobs, a taxi driver, security guard. While working as a security guard, he was bitten by a dog, fueling future delusions about dogs. Sometime after enrolling in Bronx Community College, he finally met his birth mother. She told him of his illegitimacy, saying he was probably conceived in the backseat of a car. Berkowitz was deeply disturbed by this news, ending communication with her. He began regularly setting fires in New York City. He quit his security job saying he heard voices of dogs. And at the time of his arrest, he worked at the post office. He was held in the psychiatric ward of Kings County under the supervision of Dr. Daniel Schwartz. Schwartz thought he was delusional. Three separate mental health exams were given to see if he was competent to stand trial. On August 30th, Dr. Schwartz said he was not fit to stand trial. The state said they wanted a second opinion, eventually finding that he was fit. Ahead of the trial date, he pled guilty to all charges, and that was on May 8th of 1978. His sentencing two weeks later became a circus. This time he said he didn't want to be sentenced and attempted to jump out a seventh floor courtroom window. After he was finally subdued, he was brought into the court. 
It was a very emotional atmosphere due to the victim's families appearing to speak at the sentencing. At one point, he began chanting in a sing-song voice, Stacy is a whore, referring to victim Stacy Moskowitz. Her mother, who was in the courtroom, stood up and screamed, You animal! Robert Violante was also there. He stood up and yelled, Creep! It was all too much for the already suffering families. On June 12th, he was sentenced to 25, 25 years to life for each murder, each to be served consecutively. During a press conference held in February 1979, he said his claim of demonic possession was a hoax. He told court-appointed psychiatrist David Abramson that he had contemplated murder to get revenge at the world. He was particularly angry due to his lack of success with women, which is why he sought out attractive women to kill. After Kings County, he was shuffled around a bit from prison to prison. In 1979, while in Attica, there was an attempt on his life. An inmate slashed his throat from front to back, requiring 50 stitches. In 1987, he became a born-again Christian, calling himself the Son of Hope. He gives counseling to other prisoners and has written a book called Son of Hope, The Prison Journals of David Berkowitz. However, he can't profit from any of this or any other venture. He was the inspiration for the Son of Sam law, which keeps convicted felons from profiting off any enterprise dealing with their crimes. His victims don't forgive him, and the cops involved in the case don't believe that he found God. In interviews, he brushes off what he's done, saying it's in the past. He hints that maybe he didn't even act alone. At one time, he claimed he was a member of a satanic cult, which included John and Michael Carr as members. Many people support this idea that there were several shooters or a cult involved. Journalist Maury Terry has spent 25 years trying to prove that Berkowitz didn't act alone. He thinks the initial composite sketches didn't look anything like him. He actually thinks John Carr resembles the composite. Several eyewitnesses described a blonde man, and many recall seeing a yellow Volkswagen, not a Ford Galaxy. Terry thinks Berkowitz was a fall guy. Even victim Carl DeNaro has his doubts. He said, There's no way David Berkowitz did all the shootings. I personally think it was a cult. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm convinced that, and no one can unconvince me, that more than one person was involved. Detective Bill Clark disagrees. He sat across from Berkowitz when he gave his confession, in which he gave intimate details about each killing. He is convinced he acted alone. Forty years later, near the anniversary of the first shooting, we're still talking about Son of Sam, the moniker Berkowitz hates, becoming almost synonymous with a crazed, awkward gunman. I watched a two-hour documentary about him with my 13-year-old. He was fascinated, having never heard of him until now. The look on his face when they revealed what Berkowitz looked like was priceless. This is the guy, he said? I laughed because I think everyone thought that upon first seeing him. 
I don't think anyone expected this odd Andy Kaufman-looking guy to be the one who terrorized a whole city. I knew about the case, but being a small child when it happened, I didn't know all the details. It turned out to be quite a fascinating one. Thank you for listening. I love hearing from everyone. So contact me on the Facebook page, Red Rum Blonde, or on Twitter at, at Blonde Red Rum. And at some point, I'll try to set up an email. I really appreciate ideas for future episodes. I'm kind of racking my brain about what to do the next one on. So thanks for listening and see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.